Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Yes, it is less than 100 days till the Victorian state election and it's starting to become clear which issues might rise to prominence. The opposition last week pledged to shelve the government's suburban rail loop and redirect funds to the state's health system, raising the project as a key battle line come November. There's also a question as to whether the rise of independence federally could translate to some new voices entering state parliament. Benita Kolovos is Victorian state correspondent with Guardian Australia and joins us now on the line. Great to have you you back on Triple R, Benita. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So, yeah, uh, 95 days to go. Have <laughs> uh, you got a big sort of countdown clock on, on your wall or something? I do. I've promised my partner that's when he'll get my attention again. <laughs> <laughs> 95 days to go. Um, well, talk us through the, the suburban rail loop. I mean, where did we sort of first get wind of this and, and, and where is it currently at? So... A couple months out from the 2018 state election, the Premier took to Facebook with this slick promotional video. It had this epic soundtrack um, and, you know, it showed us this line that 90 kilometres underground, running from Cheltenham all the way to Werribee via Melbourne Airport Station, which I know we've all been waiting a very long time for. Um, So when that was announced, naturally everyone got quite excited, particularly in those suburbs that were set to benefit from the loop. I think every seat that there was a station in the eastern suburbs, Labor won. So it was a very popular project. Um, But obviously since 2018, um, none of us could foresee a pandemic coming in 2020. Matthew Guy says that this has completely changed Victoria's priorities. Um, Things like obviously rising debt, um, you know, the pressure on our health system due to COVID. Um, He says now is not the time to do it. So he announced on Wednesday that if he's elected, he would thank shelved until we can afford to do it. Um, the suburban rail loop just won't go ahead under his government and every cent will go into the health system. So yeah, we've taken a, I guess it is a gamble because it's such a popular, what was in 2018, a popular project. Um, so, you know, changed priorities now. It's quite interesting. I mean, is your sense, uh, Benita, that it's lost popularity in the electorate or it's just lost popularity with the opposition? I think a bit from column A and a bit from column B. Um, We've got to take into account, you know, the pandemic has changed how Victorians work and travel. You know, government's debt has grown. We've got a skills shortage costs of material like are making these projects much more expensive to complete and in New South Wales um, the Perite government up there is actually delaying several projects not by a long time but until we see the shortages improve and costs go down um, and it's something that critics like you know the Grattan Institute the former head of um, planning here in Victoria have raised concerns about this project um, so it's not like it's out of the blue that this announcement's come. Um, But I guess, you know, shelving the projects, maybe there were other options on the table they could have considered, Um, you know, looking, revisiting it, talking to some of the people that are concerned about it because I'm not sure if you guys want to go into it, but the way this project was, um, I guess, 
devised is very different to how projects have been done in the past. Yeah, I wonder if you can talk a, a bit about that because I know you've spoken to experts in the sort of urban mm. planning space and and as you say, this is a project that, that you know, at one point was seen as widely popular and very much needed for, for those sort of outer suburbs. But but just what, what is the story with the, the, the business case, I suppose, or, or the lack thereof for the project itself? So, yeah, when we did get that announcement in 2018, there wasn't a business case with it. Um, reporters obviously asked, and we were told it's coming, um, and we're given a rough figure that it was going to cost between $30, $50 billion to build the whole loop. Um, later, it was revealed by The Age that Infrastructure Victoria didn't recommend the project. They weren't consulted before it was announced. Neither was most of Cabinet, the head of the Department of Transport, experts in the field um, think they said it was conceived in secret, um, worked on by Development Victoria and a small team um, at PwC. Um, Michael Buxton, one of the experts I spoke to, said he's never seen a project devised in such a way. He reckons it's going to cost $20 billion to build, um, costings that were done um, by the Parliamentary Budget Office on behalf of the opposition say just the first and second stage will be 125 billion um and but it's also you know we're talking about a project that's going to take decades and decades to complete so can we put a today dollar figure on something that won't be Mm. done until 2060 or 2080 it's hard to i guess calculate yeah and i guess also the trading off of immediate needs and there's clear needs in health and other areas of the economy directly with a particular infrastructure project i mean is that my understanding that's not normally how even state budget works, is it? Like we, we we do set up for the future now and stage it over years and actually many governments. And I think that was one thing that when announcing it, the state government said, look, none of us are going to be here in government when mm-hmm. this is delivered. So the idea that you can have a far-reaching project that allows people to be on a train rather than a car and these sorts of things, I mean, that's the stuff that captured imaginations. But do you think the price ticket now we'll turn people away from this project, Benita? Yeah, it's hard to say. And, you know, I, my brother went to Monash Uni and to get there he had to get, I think, a bus, then a train, then another bus to get to Clayton. And this line would connect not only Monash Uni but Deakin and I think Latrobe as well, um, which is, you know, very beneficial for those unis and for the hospitals in those areas. It definitely makes sense and... A lot of the same kind of planning experts that have been weighing in on suburban rail loop have also been really critical of governments being so short-term in their vision and their planning because, you know, a government's only elected in Victoria for four years at a federal level, only three years. So how are you ever going to have these big projects if a government doesn't start them and see them through? Like, you know, if we look back at um, Daniel Andrews in 2014, he announced he was going to scrap the east-west link if he was elected. And then before that, the Metro Tunnel was scrapped by, I think, the Bailey government um, when Brax announced it. So, you know, if we're going to have this every election, like, what does that mean for these bigger visionary projects? You know, Metro Tunnel is now being built and now is costing a lot of money, but would it have been better to do then? Um, So it just raises those questions. And the Premier has said... A government's job is not to just invest in one area. You have to do it all. That's what a government does. That's what a budget is for. So I think there is some 
I guess, concern amongst the coalition that by Matthew Guy not looking at, I guess, the issues with this project and ruling it out and saying he's going to put this money into health, does it raise, you know, does it look like now we won't be able to do both or we can't do both or it's such a kind of binary thing? Um, you know, I think the Premier yesterday put up a meme of that taco girl going, um, pequeno has dos, like, why can't we do both? Right, so I, I didn't he's, see that. <laughs> he's been, yeah, he's been very clever in um, the social media use, right? And I think that's how he's going to frame it. You know, as a government, we will do all these things for you because that's what governments do. So I guess we'll have to see if Victorians buy it. Yeah, it's been an interesting week for politicians and memes, I've got to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think mentioning the East-West link is, is really relevant here because, um, you know, listeners might remember that the previous Napthine government, you know, signed contracts essentially, which, which meant that when Labor did scrap it, there was, I think, more than a billion dollars in, in sunk costs associated with that, which mm-hmm. potentially made it much harder for, for the ALP to, to follow through with, even though they did. I wonder if you see any relevance here or any kind of cautionary tale for what could happen if politics um, dictates more than it should, perhaps, what happens with the suburban rail loop and how much money might be lost as a result of, of you know, political kind of point scoring. Yeah, so we were trying to figure this out and there's a running joke that journalists don't know how to do maths and I 100% <laughs> agree. Um, basically, Matthew Guy doesn't want to repeat that, you know, it, it did look pretty bad because the Premier, Daniel Andrews, when he did win that election, he came out saying that the contracts that the government signed for the East-West Link weren't even worth the paper they were written on. He's not going to pay a single cent to get rid of this road and that isn't what happened. He ended up spending billions on cancelling those contracts. So Guy, I think, has been conscious of that and he said that he's not going to stop any early works that have been signed up. So that's, I think, $2.2 billion worth of early works for the first stage of the project, which is between Cheltenham and Box Hill. That's things like getting sewerage pipes out of the way, um, electrical lines, making sure that if, you know, this tunnel is to pass through that area, it can still go there. So I guess that's a smart move not saying that he's going to stop it, but then also $2.2 billion is a lot of money if you're not going to do it. So, I don't know, it's, I guess, up to Victorians to make a call on whether they think that's logical. Yeah. Well, Benita, I mean, in, in The Guardian, you've been writing about many things to do with state politics in Victoria, <laughs> and one of them, I mean, we do have the election coming up, and we are seeing... Um, I guess you call them micro parties or smaller parties registering ahead of the election. Mm. And I'd be interested in your reflections on how much, uh, what, what this is about, uh, whether it is in reaction to, to government through the pandemic or integrity issues that we're seeing on, on both sides of politics. I mean, what, what do you see as driving the, the growth in micro parties in Victoria? Well, so neither the opposition or Labor have covered themselves in glory when it comes to integrity. I think in the last, couple of weeks we've had both you know the branch stacking inquiry into labor talking about the rotten culture there then we've had the donor scandal with Matthew Guy's former chief of staff you know it prompted a wave of resignations in his office um so we saw integrity became a massive issue at a federal level in the you know election we had I think seven Peel independent candidates get into parliament um which is quite extraordinary, um, and integrity was one of their central pillars. So I think it makes sense that we're going to see that at a Vic level, particularly given the issues in that space. Um, and I think we saw, you know, almost a third of 
Australians didn't vote for a major party at the May election. So there's a bit more, I guess, level of comfort in doing so again. Um, so we've got, obviously, the Teal candidates that are running in Victoria. We know um, definitely going to see them um, in Caulfield. Nomi Coltman has announced she's going to be running there. Um, we've got Brighton, Sandringham, Kew, Hawthorne, you know, all areas that we had Teal independents do well at a federal level here. And then on the other side, we do have those micro-parties. So we had a wave of parties um, register and have a, guess, a successful application with the Electoral Commission. There's, like, legalised cannabis. There's the, like, Sack Dan Andrews party. Um, we've got the, like, what are they, Fusion, which is, like, science, pirates, and all those people, I think, have formed a coalition. We've got the Angry Victorians, Um so I think the micro-parties um, is interesting. I, I don't want to bore you guys, but we have a very weird upper house system in Victoria. We're the only state that has group voting tickets anymore. So what that means is you can be a small party, but if you team up with others and direct preferences to each other, you actually have a greater chance here in Victoria of getting into the upper house than any other upper house. Um, so I guess they're also looking at that and going, this is a way we could, you know, make an impact is getting into the Victorian Parliament. Um, it's hard to say. I think the Coalition thought there was going to be a bit of anti-Dan sentiment at the federal election. They campaigned really heavily on that in some outer suburban seats. Um, but that was a federal election. Will that be different come the state election? I guess we'll find out in November. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. There's so much secrecy around. We are extra proud to have a Freedom of Information correspondent as part of this show on Triple R. It's not easy to get information out of government at the best of times, um, but there are ways to try. And journalist Petra Stock has been maintaining an FOI habit for about a decade, popping in requests to government departments and agencies when she gets curious about something. And uh, Petra, it's good to have you back on Triple R. It's been a few weeks since we last saw you. Hello. Thanks for having me. What better time to talk about transparency in government Absolutely. than last week? <laughs> Don't know what you're referring to, something about ministries, not sure. Um, but, yeah, this morning we're going to hear about your adventures seeking information about Uber Air. And this goes back a few years, but for people who haven't heard about it, what is this idea of Uber Air in Melbourne? Well, this was pre-pandemic, so <laughs> some people may have forgotten what life was like back then. Um, but it was interesting hearing Benita talk about how the rail um, loop was announced with sort of a sort of out of nowhere with a sort of um, fancy video that went up on the government website. Well, Uber Air was kind of announced in a similar way. So back in June 2019. Um, the Premier attended an infrastructure summit in Victoria um, and also we sent Assistant Treasurer Robin Scott to Washington DC um, and there was this big announcement Melbourne would be the launch city for Uber Air, one of three cities, um, the other two in the US. Um, and what was proposed was sort of tens of thousands of essentially um, electric helicopters delivering people <laughs> to their destinations like taxis. Um, and this was all going to kick off in Melbourne from 2020. 
Um, wow. What year is it again? Twenty twenty two. Yeah. <laughs> so so that didn't happen with a uh, and the plan was to to scale up by twenty twenty three, and and yeah, essentially um, it was announced. There was a video which looked like an ad that was put on the Department of Transport website. And um, immediately I had so many questions about (laughs) what this would entail, thinking about the different impacts, um, but there was no further information to be found. It's all very Jetsons-like, isn't it? It's that vision of the future that we've all had for, you know, decades of, um, of little helicopters and, and vehicles flying us around the city. But that's remarkable. I wasn't aware that there were plans to actually make this a thing so soon after the announcement. So, so what happened with it? What, why don't we have Uber Air? So um, there's been a bit of history since then. Um, one of the things that happened was obviously COVID-19. Um, so uh, about, I think, uh, mid-2020, Uber uh, did, a, did a fresh announcement and said, oh, we're just, you know, th- we won't be doing trial flights in 2020 because of the pandemic, but Melbourne, you're still one of our launch cities. Um, And then later in 2020, I think around December, um, Uber actually offloaded its, um, I think they call the whole air thing, Uber Elevate, they offloaded that to another company um, and actually paid the other company $75 million to take it off their hands um, to Joby Aviation. Um, So... It's no longer an Uber Air proposal, but I would say there are other proposals along these lines still happening in Melbourne. So last year there was a similar type of proposal that came from Microflight, which already operates helicopters in um, Melbourne, and another company um, called Embraer. They did a joint announcement along the same lines. And so you saw the announcement and got curious. So what then did you do, Petra? Well, um, you would think that initially I would FOI this, um, but actually the first thing I did was I just decided to send off um, a whole lot of questions to anyone I thought um, might be relevant. So I was thinking about, you know, what is the planning process that applies here? Because we have those processes for roads and rail but there isn't one that applies for sort of this mass scale air project. And actually the state government doesn't have planning kind of rights over the air. That's Commonwealth jurisdiction. It's also noise, community, you know, um, consultation. I was thinking about privacy because these things are like drones. They're flying around the city. So I had all these questions and um, I, I actually sent off emails to Richard Wynne, the planning minister, saying what's the process here, to um, other ministers like the police minister, because not long before then we just put in all these bollards around Melbourne to stop cars driving mm. into crowded areas and now we're introducing sort of um, flights. Anyway... Um, No one really responded to me. Richard Wynne came back to me and said, it's not my responsibility. You should ask the Minister for Public Transport. I wrote to her, that was Melissa Horn at the the time. And then um, it was funny because 
at the end of all of that, I got a letter back from not one of the ministers I'd written to, but Tim Pallas saying thank you for all of your um, letters and not providing really any answers to to any of the questions that I'd raised. Um, so that's when I thought, oh, got to FOI this, try and find <laughs> Need out. Need more information <laughs> to use the system. Um, and, and so, I mean, that's so interesting. So you're trying to dig into what's going on here, but there's, there's ministers who you'd think might have some responsibility saying, not my domain here, ask someone else. So some kind of, some buck passing. What did you specifically what kind of information did you try and get through the FOI process? I mean, what questions did did you ask? So I guess I'm kind of quite a hopeful person. I guess I hoped that Victoria would have, you know, signed up to this thing with some sort of information about what was proposed. You know, where are these things going to fly? Where are they going to land? What, you know, what are we actually talking How will people about? access them? So, so many questions about just tangible, real details about what's going to happen in our city, Melbourne. Um, so that's what I was trying to find, really. Um, a bit more information than what was put in the Uber press release. Um, and eventually I did uncover the information that, Vic- that the Victorian government had before essentially signing up to this project Um, and it's basically a 10-page document called Uber Air 101 um, with a very, very poor graphic design, I have to say, and three of those 10 pages were just given over to sort of pictures and uh, title pages and so on. So, um, so who held the information and uh, and what was the request process to? Seems this is a FOI segment here, and we're kind of giving people a bit of a one hundred and one as we also find out what you found out. But how did you know who to request the information from if you didn't actually know who held the information? So um, I think I mentioned before on this program that one of my tactics is to FOI anyone I think might hold some information. So I tried the Department of Transport. Um, I learned that Invest Victoria, which is this sort of global... uh, We have these sort of global offices internationally which try and encourage companies to come to Victoria. I learned that they had some sort of role in it, so I FOI'd them... Uh, also the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, the Air Services Australia. Um, those are two bodies that regulate air transport and the Department of Infrastructure and Transport at the federal level. So it was, it was a bit of a, like, I didn't really know. I mean, the ministers didn't know um, who was responsible really. So I just um, tried all sorts of different routes and eventually... Um, got some information back. I also eventually got some information back from the Civil Aviation Safety Authority and the department federally. When I saw this announcement back in 2019, uh, I, I was you know, quite cynically thought this is a marketing employee from Uber. What a, what a clever way to brand yourself as this forward-thinking organisation. Um, the next step, I suppose, in ride-sharing, flying around the city, you know, it's quite exciting. Um, but you would assume that when a government is announcing something's actually going to happen, that there's a bit more substance there. What do you make of the fact that there was this you know, relatively small document, heavy on pictures um, that seemed to underpin this whole announcement? 
And I must say, also, heavy on pictures, light on detail. I mean, from that 10-page document, the only real sort of additional details which were eventually covered by Daniel Ziffer in the ABC um, were the speed at which these things were going to travel, the um, together with an Uber white paper, sort of the number of aircraft and the number of landing places. That was sort of... Um, what was able to be gained. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's sort of disappointing, I think. I, you know, no surprise from Uber. And I think that was most people's response. Ah, oh, that'll never happen. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, that's cool. I think those were the two kind of responses from people I talked to about this. Or maybe both, that's cool, that'll never happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you do hope that governments give some thought to what is the community's um, response going to be, what is their say in, um, you know, the airspace around their city. And now what of this project? I mean, you've, you've got the kind of basis of the, of the announcement, um, you know, provided from, from freedom of information from the government and will it see the light of day, do you think, this idea of having helicopters transporting people because I, I, I guess you know me like many people would have noticed that for events like the Grand Prix sometimes for the races you see people flying from the city out to these events and the helicopters coming going coming going so um, that's exciting for the people on and probably annoying for the people around those spaces but yeah what are we likely to ever see this happen in Melbourne? I would say two things. One, watch this space because this is something I've maintained an interest in and mm. hope to something provide coming. an update. Interesting. Um, and two, um, something I learned as I was like looking into this is actually Melbourne once had a helicopter taxi service back in the sort of 60s and 70s. And this sort of links to that Jetsons idea, which has really kicked off this whole concept that people are very attached to about the future equals flying cars. Um, Really, there's no, in my mind, sort of obvious sort of benefit to travelling by air, but I think it tracks back to the Jetsons. Um, Anyway, yeah, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there were helicopter taxi services in LA and a number of cities, including Melbourne, Um, transporting thousands of people but in Melbourne they didn't continue because land transport offered a cheaper almost as quick uh, and um, you know alternative option in other places like Los Angeles these sorts of services became less attractive after really major helicopter crashes so I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I, I don't love the idea of just hopping into some random flying car and hoping it doesn't crash. Like, I don't know, I've got a bit of a thing about heights, but um, I'm comfortable being, being on solid ground. Um, but so, so this, this still is an idea that sort of could, could go somewhere potentially. It's not something that's been necessarily scrapped. Um, and I know you're doing work on this and we'll wait and see what comes of that, but this is not, not dead. No, and as I said, there's, you know, there's other proposals mm. in the mix um, from microflight that already operates helicopters, there's um, others like uh, ex-politician Clem Newton-Brown who has a company that called Skyports which is sort of focused on helping the industry navigate the planning requirements of, um, you know, building the 
sort of heli ports or they call them verdi ports um for these for for this i i don't think it's going away in mm. in fact the federal government last year had a number of policy papers that came out sort of setting the the framework for this kind of industry so I think, uh, and a lot of people thought, oh, this will never happen. But even when Uber made the announcement, you know, it wasn't just Uber. It was Telstra, Macquarie, uh, Centre Capital, which operates Westfield, um, a whole range of big, serious companies that were signed up to this idea. So I I think... You know, we should take it seriously and hope that governments also take it seriously. Must have been a compelling 10-page document to get so (laughs) many interested parties. Um, Thank you so much for coming in again, Petra, and we'll catch you in about a month's time and I can't wait to hear what you tell us next. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Coming up this Friday, two long-term housing activists and scholars, Dr David Kelly and Professor Libby Porter, who work in the area of homelessness, crisis accommodation and social housing, will be holding a free public event on dwelling justice. Um, David's a Vice-Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellow at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT and he's a cultural geographer specialising in ethnographic methods. His research includes a focus on remote Aboriginal housing, inner-city public housing, Disability in the city, environmental controversy, and green-led urban regeneration. He just wears so many hats there, and it's really great to have you joining us now, David. Uh, welcome. Thanks, Carly. Um, nice to be here. Yeah, and I mean, what kind of conversation um, does having a forum on dwelling justice open up? Do you think? Uh, I think a lot of different conversations. I think um, what we wanted to do was bring together a whole bunch of people who were dealing with a more expansive category than just housing. So we all know that housing is getting a bit tough right now and has been for a number of decades. But there's also people who are fighting fights alongside them, things that aren't really tapping into the housing question and the housing question isn't tapping into what they're doing. So we wanted to bring together a whole bunch of conversations around the expansion of prisons in this state and this country, um, around the various sorts of modes of dispossession that occur occur in this country, uh, first and foremost amongst First Nations people, but also people who have come here from places where they've been dispossessed, so Palestinian comrades and people like that. Um, So we wanted to really have a more expansive conversation about this idea of dwelling, not just housing, but it's all connected to housing. And so that sounds like a really sort of grand and big idea. How do you start to bring in the right people to have those kinds of conversations? Yeah, well, a lot of it has been, um, it's not it's not specifically our networks that we're, we're like just drawing people from, but we're using people who are involved in those campaigns and those activisms to then reach out to their their people who they have in their networks to say who is the person who can speak with the most authority about this issue here. Um, we have been able to secure people like Lydia Thorpe um, as well as Robbie Thorpe um, and Uncle um, Larry Walsh and people like that who are kind of experts in being able to get across a story of dwelling insecurity, of dispossession, of those sorts of things. It's been quite a task trying to get all those people in the same room, but I think we've been able to put together a pretty awesome program of people and 
speakers, collaborators. Yeah. And I did note that you had uh, Senator Lydia, Lydia Thorpe on the bill and it straight away interested in me in, in um, with regards to what our parliaments can do or, or in this case senators might be able to do about current housing policy. I mean, is it going to be as direct as that or, or, or really this sort of more expansive conversation? Um, I think it's a case of lighting multiple fires in multiple locations. I don't think one thing solves the issue. Um, for centuries now, we've had critical kind of philosophers talk about the housing question, and it's always been um, around this idea that the housing question is actually a social question. It's not just this technocratic thing that you can just pull a lever in Parliament and all of a sudden dwelling security is solved. Um, so... Yes, Lydia Thorpe has um, is playing a role in, in addressing the dwelling question in this country by her voice in Parliament. Um, but it's also about direct action. It's also about the various campaign groups that exist, such as the Renters and Housing Union, Homeless Persons Union, those sorts of groups, Homes Not Prisons, who are doing the direct action work. So it's it's multiple fires in multiple locations all at once, and that's what we're trying to do with this thing, is bring together all those fires to see whether or not something more, something can become more of the sum of its parts. Yeah, and, and the issue of prison populations increasing, you know, has been known for some time in Victoria with the quite ha- harsh bail laws that we have in practice. And and women, and particularly Aboriginal women, are among the fastest growing cohorts of people in prisons in Victoria currently. I wonder if you can sort of talk to us about that link between incarceration and, and groups who might already be marginalised and broader sort of dwelling security going yeah. forward. Yeah, well, one interesting stat that I've seen recently was 80% of um, of the prison population who, who entered the prison system this year were homeless within the, the three weeks prior to them becoming incarcerated. So what we're seeing is an increase in criminalisation of poverty. Um, and so that poverty is very intimately related to their housing circumstances. Um, as soon as you become homeless, you be- you become embroiled in, in this trap, um, this poverty trap, and that then brings you into a closer proximity to the law, um, and you have more and more encounters with police, and that then leads to your criminalisation and incarceration. So there's that very clear link between homelessness and in- imprisonment. Um, we know that, you know, not to kind of dwell on on this too much, but in in places like the Northern Territory, there is no um, over the last year there was no child in a juvenile detention system that wasn't Aboriginal. Um, so we do have a very racialized form of poverty in this country, which then leads to a racialized form of incarceration. Um, so the links are multiple. It's about housing. It's about race. It's about um, Indigenous sovereignty, it's about all of those things all at once. Um, but the the response to that, what we're terming dwelling precarity, the response from the state is punitive. And we've seen that when we looked at the North Melbourne and Flemington lockdown during COVID. The response to that community who were, who were in inadequate housing was and experiencing precarity, the response was to be punitive and to bring in the police and a militarised response. And that's increasingly becoming so in this country where we're seeing carceral responses and police responses to poverty and dwelling precarity.
Uh, Dr. David Kelly's with us and uh, he's one of the organisers for a forum coming up on Friday. It's the Forum for Dwelling Justice and it's been held at the Capitol Theatre in the city and uh, it's well attended. It's free. So if you're getting interested, uh, jump on and, and get your ticket if you can. But uh, it's it's cool that you're at the Capitol Theatre because you're screening a couple of documentaries yeah. as part of this, uh, David. So maybe tell us about uh, the the docos that will be on the big screen. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, Capitol Theatre is a brilliant venue, like really, really set up for this sort of event with film screenings. Um, we're showing two films. So one of them was premiered last week. It's um, it's a sneak peek. So the, the filmmaker is trying to turn a 20-minute video into a full feature. And that's on the Bendigo Street um, occupation that happened um, pre-COVID. Um, this was in the fallout of the East-West Link. Um, and what happened was the government compulsorily acquired all the houses on the street, but then didn't actually um, go ahead with the project and so they were vacant. So a squatting movement moved in to kind of politicise the issue that there's there's people here who need houses and there's empty houses here, what are you doing about it? And so the, the film is about that campaign, that movement, and it's peer-led, so it's told from the perspective of people who are involved, people who are actually living that. Um, and also we have a second feature film um, which will be 50 minutes long called Things Will Be Different and that's a story of dispossession and displacement of public housing um, residents in the Walker Street estate in Northcote, which was recently bulldozed and it's going to be replaced with an overwhelming amount of private housing and a small, small amount of social housing. Um, so telling that's telling the story of two families who are displaced and what happens, what's the emotional sort of process that people go through when they're displaced against their will, um, and that's also peer-led. Yeah, that's so important to hear those kinds of personal stories, I think, in making these connections that the forum explores. And I love the analogy of lighting spot fires through having these conversations that might not appear at, at you know, first look to be directly related. But of course, they are for all those reasons you've outlined. Um, I suppose the one reason for the forum is to build solidarity coming out of these conversations that are happening. What do you imagine might sort of come after? What are you hoping this, this might, what kind of fruit might it bear, I suppose? Yeah, well, we have an election coming up at the end of the year, so we're kind of setting our sights on that as a bit of bit of a, something to corral around. Um, so Homes Not Prisons, they're working on um, putting together a rally around housing. So we haven't had a very popular sort of street movement around housing, and we haven't had a what the government might term a constituency around housing for quite some time. So what we're trying to do is build that sort of movement so that we can actually bring all these groups together, have a rally, um, initiate campaigns, work together and pool resources. Um, so what we'll do is, as, as um, I suppose activists and scholars is maintain that network of people and try to like continually bring them into conversation with each other um, we're not vanguard. We're not going to lead the movement or anything like that. But we want to. We want to make sure that we're keeping all of these um, plates spinning and that we're we're allowing people to connect with each other. We're also going to have like numerous ways in which we're going to get the information out there. So we're going to be um, a lot, lot of public writing. Um, uh, we're going to have a podcast series that comes out of the forum, um, and and those sorts of things. So we're hoping that this will be the first stage in a kind of longer process of building something around this idea of dwelling justice. And, you know, I'm so fascinated and taken by this idea of building a, a constituency here because 
uh, I know not everyone has a house, but a lot a lot of people do. And it, the idea that we're all part of something isn't sort of how things work. And yet we've all got a stake in this, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And increasingly so. There's more and more households are becoming precarious. More and more households are falling into um, mortgage insecurity um, or stress. Um, so that group of people who are becoming precariously housed is growing. And so whether you like it or not, you might become an accidental activist around these sorts of issues if you want to advocate for yourself, if you want to advocate for others and your neighbours. Um, we are seeing, like, there are movements building. So out of COVID came the rent strike movement, and that was a global movement where people were saying, I can't pay rent because I don't have a job anymore. Um, and that morphed in this country and in this city that morphed into the renters and housing union so we're seeing that a political class of renters um, and people who have mortgages who can become solidarity members of the union that's growing and so we're seeing a politicization of that group of people um building a constituency might be a little bit harder but we can look to other contexts in other countries like where i'm from in ireland um in the 2020 election Sinn fein got the popular vote for the first time since the Irish Rebellion in nineteen, you know, in the in the early nineteen tens, twenties, and they did that on a housing platform. So, like, a, a kind of a very strong cultural identity was able to mobilise around this idea of we need housing, um, and we we're not going to take it any longer. So, I think we're a few years behind that here, but we're in the early stages of fostering that. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.